Welcome to KCast. This is Caleb. This is Chris. Hey. Is this song literally about getting around? Yeah. Like just about everyone they're hooking up with and going on dates with. Them. Yeah, this is the 50s. This is It's the... pretty straightforward. I get around. Yeah, this they is They the put last... it right on Front Street, you know. I'm not just that. I'm bragging about how much I get around. It's... Let's see. It's the American car culture. It's the Beach Boys. This is the... Apparently. The last of the American-dominated mm-hmm. American rock scene. These are teenage heartthrobs. These are handsome guys. They're, you know... Right. Many female f- fans, just like how they would chase the Beatles. These guys are getting chased. Well, America had a culture in the 50s and 60s that I guess didn't happen to anywhere near the degree in Europe or, or any of the other uh, countries. Any of the other What's rock that? countries, but they had the car culture. They had okay. the idea where that not not just that not just that teenagers owned cars, but that they they built hot rods. They built them out mm. of wrecked car. You know, old, like Little Deuce Coupe would be about that. Yeah, you know? okay. it's, a, it's an old thirty-two. You know, they had the, in America. You had all these cars, pre old pre-war cars. You know, Model Fords, which made great hot rods because mm-hmm, yeah. you could you put a, like a new engine, the latest model V eight. You know, and from, from cars from the fifties or something sure. that you'd modify it. You'd build a custom exhaust. You'd go out and find a you know a, a Holly yeah. like you know, American graffiti, carburetor. You know, that's what that right. was about. And you, but you build this, you build this hot rod, this custom car. Or you'd modify stuff. You you know you go to a machine shop and and the, you know all the Beach Boys songs are about. They mention in the song all the stuff that you do to the cars. You know how <laughs> they're all modified and it's got a you know a four. You know, you know, four speed. It's funny when you see a song kind of innocently titled "Hanky Panky" or something, and it's right. like you know, they're just—it's a very thin metaphor, for, right. for the sex they're talking about. Right. Well, <laughs> America was the wealthiest state. We talk. I go over this. Over. <laughs> this know. is the whole American culture from the '60s and the and the youth of the '60s. And our, you're the our, resident our expert. Parents. Well, our parents was built on this culture. There were these kids that had these cars, and that was their independence. They'd go to you know, they'd be cruising at the drive-ins. Everything was drive-ins. Not drive-throughs, drive-ins, where they drive-ins, go there and they yeah. hang out and they had their cars and you could, you know, put a girl on, you know, get a girl and you, your car was like your own private room that you could drive around the city in a sense. You know, you get in the backseat of the car and, and no parents were there and you were unsupervised. So, you, you know, you had, you had authority, you had freedom, you could, you know, drive across country in it. You know, it just occurred to me, so I get around, double meaning, I drive around right. and I get around with the ladies. Right. And they exactly. go hand in hand, right? And you so want connected. You want you want your car all polished and show off. To I the... drop off that lady and I go meet another right. one. Sure, yeah, exactly. Because I can do that because I have a car now. Right, you have a car. Before I couldn't do that. Uh-huh. I'd have to take the bus, which is much longer, much harder to <laughs> get around. Not cool. You're taking the Not bus. Not cool to have a bus. You, you saw American Graffiti. You talked about American Graffiti. Yeah. Having a car was everything. You couldn't do anything on a moped. Yeah. You know? So you had a car. Now you had entree. Now Before that, it was you date who's in your neighborhood because right. you can walk there. Well, you can't even get those girls. Those girls want a guy with a car, right? Yeah, yeah I'm saying. But you can yeah. go to the scene. You can go to wherever it's happening. You're racing on the strip. If you're racing, then you're way cool. But not only having, but I mean, you you have a car. You can go. You can go outside your city and get better jobs. You know, the whole world was you drive across country with a car and go see the world in a car. Yeah. Uh, you know, whatever. You have all these amazing adventures. So a car was uh, the car culture. Rock and roll, that was that was American. Um, Americans, uh, rock and roll was an American art form. Damn it. It was sung by El, you know, Elvis. It was the Beach Boys uh, in this era. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it was all American bands. It was, you know, Little Richard. Uh, Do you think the double these... entendre was evident at the time? It would have had to have been. Oh, right? yeah. That, that, oh, yeah. It's obvious. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah exactly. Obvious. That's what you have. Guys like the Wolfman. 
and these guys on the radio and they're talking about stuff and, and they had the, the parents were outraged. Oh, you can't have that guy on the radio. That You know, little kids could be listening to that yeah, guy. Yeah, talking about getting around. No, the yeah, cars, the no, cars. They were, they, they were upset because this was, you know, because this guy was was black. And the Wolfman wasn't really black. He wasn't. He but he, but he sounded he sounded black. Yeah. <laughs> and they spoke, you know, the, the blues, the songs of the blues, a lot of the blues had like these double entendres and they're about sex and violence and cheating on your woman or getting caught cheating or getting thrown out and all the different kind of stuff that's going on. Wow. And 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 uh and so a lot of that stuff carried over into rock and roll too. Um uh some of the rock and roll was like re- you know, really uh wholesome or not exactly wholesome, but it was uh bubblegum kind of stuff. But a lot of it was sort of, you know, Louie Louie and these guys are sort of drunk, babbling on about this <laughs> stuff, and everybody's arguing about how, you know, whether or not it's it's uh, illicit and what exactly it's referring to, and it just sounds nasty and funky. Well, even like the the Beach Boys' California Girls, yeah, like the Midwest Farmer's Daughter, she knows how to keep you warm at night. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> kind of stuff. No, there's definitely some imagery that's very, yeah. you, whether you want to call it romantic or sexy or... or uh, uh, but that, you know that's what she wants. That's what you're give the audience what they want. Yeah, you're gonna paint these pictures you know. for them. And but this was all the American stuff and the Beach Boys. Uh, they came at the you know at the end where it was dominated by by this Americans and American culture. And uh, you know when the Beatles came along, you know all of a sudden there was the British invasion and and they sort of knocked the Beach Boys off their throne. Yeah. Uh, the Beach Boys weren't the, you know, they were like, there was Jan and Dean and there was a lot of California surf bands and there was some East Coast, you know, a lot of East Coast rock bands that were great. You know but, what I like about the Beach Boys? Yeah. If you made a mixed CD of greatest hits, yeah. there's like 20 tracks you could fit on there that would pretty much cover everything you need to know about the Beach Boys. Right, right. You know? Right. They they fit very nicely onto one 20-track CD that you could play and enjoy. Right. And, well, the Beach Boys' pet sound is revered by... Uh, yeah, uh, legendary. Yeah, revered, but it's revered by um, Rolling uh, Stone. By Rolling Stone magazine is is either the top yeah. or one of the top two or three best rock albums of all time. Yeah, absolutely. So the Beach Boys had legend, but but uh, yeah, but the Beach Boys were sort of knocked off their throne by the Beatles. Yeah, and and by the mid '60s. Well, Paul McCartney of, said that God only knows this is his all-time favorite song. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. No, very much respected rock band today. He was always, he was always a big fan of Brian Wilson. They've played together later on. At right. Different stuff, Grammys, MTV, whatever the occasion is. Exactly. But when the British, my, my point was sort of when the British invasion mm-hmm. entered the band, rock and roll became an international. Well, it, it had been sort of inter, it had been international before that. But um, it was very much, there was very much a lot of resistance initially to the fact that these guys were British hmm. and they were invading an American art form. Interesting. Um, yeah. And, uh, and Because of the Revolutionary it, War, Chris, yeah. people still holding grudges. <laughs> that, well, yeah, that and, and uh, there was a we lot were of... We allies issues. in World War Two, so that should have, you know, buried the hatchet. You see FDR and Churchill hanging out, you kind of think, all right. Right, right. Well, We're you know, good now. it's just you had like a lot of these. We're, we got over the Boston Tea Party. You had a lot of these <laughs> top American stars that didn't that you know they liked the idea that this was an American art form, and these mm. guys were British. How? What do they know about rock and roll? But, but you know, you couldn't deny them their spot. They come in and they rock the stadium, and they draw the fans, and they knew how to they knew how to rock, and and in a lot of ways, Absolutely. they understood the rebellion, and um, and the sort of the blues culture that was at the roots of rock. Better than the Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, we were talking about this before we started podcasting. That uh, you know, the British had the 
England was like pretty much bombed out. The city of London was like bombed out during World War Two. They yeah. had their whole their uh, they lost you know probably a higher much higher percentage of their population um, as soldiers and as uh, casualties in the war than than anything in the U.S. So the you know the the yeah, British right kids the that came there. along during the British invasion these guys these were guys that you know that uh, grew up with a lot fewer parents um, a lot less infrastructure. Uh, you know, they knew they, you know, they'd come along after the war when everything was being rebuilt. Um, and yeah, so, John Lennon didn't know his dad. You know, single mother, right? Know, stepdad. So these, these, these. This wasn't the 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 decadence that the U.S. had, where we were virtually untouched by you know the the homeland. The continental U.S. was virtually untouched. You know, we we lost soldiers, but nowhere near the high percentage of of casualties that Britain had suffered. Britain had lost a lot of civilians during the war. So yeah. there were a lot of broken homes were just ripped apart by the war, as well as the invasion of all these American soldiers that... Uh, sure. Uh, soldiers, Navy, you know, fighting men that, that came through the country, you know, on their way to Europe and stuff. So uh, so their culture, they I could understand why these, these young British kids identified with the blues and... Uh, you know that they were listening to as little kids that that introduced them to sort of the uh, elements of rock and roll. And by the time the sixties roll around, things are improving just enough to where they they can escape into music again and right, right. Well, and they express themselves that way. Right, exactly. Um, things are rebuilt enough. It's happening enough. Exactly, uh, and so um, so in a lot of ways, you you can understand how the British, you know, the young British youth in the in the fifties, growing up as little kids, you know, a lot of you know much more inclined to be orphans or from broken homes or you know where there's like a lot of lost loved ones and far less you know parental supervision, um, you could identify more with the with the blues culture that had given birth to rock and roll, um, you know, back in the in the late forties. It seems to me that the the Beach Boys and the five person harmony was sort of the end of an era that segued into this next Beatles era, where while they all sang, it was really about kind of the two lead singers who would harmonize, but it wasn't the same as this falsetto five person harmony right thing that the Beach Boys were well, doing. Well, rock and roll transitioned from the mid sixties to the late sixties, and it and it. Along with folk rock, folk rock had a lot of protest songs, protesting. You know, they they protested the Vietnam War later, but they protested a lot of cultural uh, issues early on. Folk song had always, you know, uh, protest songs were always like by nature folk songs because they were more simple instruments. Um, you know, harmonies and people singing and, and and vocals were extremely important. And so you had guys like Woody Guthrie. Guthrie you know, complaining about working conditions and labor conditions. That name sounds very made institutions up. And his son Arlo Guthrie and the you know the Seegers and the Kingston Trio and all these guys that went back to the you know the '30s, the heritage of folk song and protest songs in the '40s, and it sort of met up with when the figure of Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and these kind of people in the in the early '60s, which you know in which the songs had these much more intellectual. Um, roots and and hmm. and ideas in the songs and in the lyrics, comp, you know, much more complicated than what you were hearing in the rock and roll of that day. In the rock and roll, you know, it was these love songs, and you had the Beach Boys singing about their 409, 409, and songs like this. Yeah, right. And this is rock and roll. This is the early rock and roll. It's just a lot it's so of bragging for rock and roll. A lot of bragging. 
yeah. a lot of romance, a lot of happier things. They're talking about their cars. They're talking about, you know, their they're sexual literally prowess. sitting on two cars. Yeah. In this music video, they're talking about their sexual prowess. They're so. talking about their freedom. They're talking about just the joy of being young. They're talking about, uh, you know, what happened at the what happened at the uh, at the school dance and all this sort of stuff. And it's a lot of a lot of bubblegum, a lot of sweetness and light and joy and excitement and and raun- some raunchiness and, and yeah. little, some violence. There's some fighting and there's some stuff. But it's it's a lot of stuff on the lighter side of life. Folk music's coming along from the other side where they're talking about these unfair working conditions and the, you know, Tom Dooley, hang your head down, Tom Dooley, and and uh, and if I had a hammer. And you know Bob Dylan's got blown in the wind, and all these songs that are about the darker elements of life, yeah. and and situations and stuff like that. And it sort of meets up in the you know in the mid '60s, where you you sort of get like folk folk meets rock, and and rock starts getting more about rebellion, and and especially when you know when the Vietnam War comes along, of course. Um, and so you yeah. have these rock and roll guys embracing these Should've elements of folk dark. song. Yeah, and, and and so that's when the Beatles sort of come on the scene at the same time from Britain. And they have a much darker background in a lot of their music. You know, their early stuff that gets popular is I Want to Hold Your Hand. And, you know, it's got a lot of the same elements as, yeah. as the Beach Boys stuff at first. Um, but it gets much more sophisticated till you get to albums like Revolver and The Long and Winding Road and, you know, Abbey Lane Absolutely. and all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, it at was the end Rubber Soul and Pet Sounds. I mean, yeah. Pet Sounds came right after Rubber yeah. Soul. Chris, has, have you ever just gotten a song stuck in your head, Chris? <laughs> oh, yeah. Just stuck in your head. Chris, this song... I got song, songs stuck all over my body, Keo. I mean, I, I, I <laughs> use the Beach Boys. <laughs> the head is the least... The head is the least. The least, of, the least of the issues of where I got songs stuck. I, I just use the Beach Boys because it's a very good movie out right now, Love and Mercy, about the Beach right. Boys. But that wasn't the song stuck in my head today, Chris. This song, for some reason, was stuck <laughs> in my head today. This song, Chris. Oh no! It's by the Sticks. <laughs> this, it's this great band. Oh, you gotta hear this chorus, Chris. It's such a good chorus. It's it's money. It's pure ecstasy. This is called the song break. All right. Oh no! 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 Oh yeah! This is money right here. Just give me my moments. Just give me my chorus. There it is. Okay. Yeah. I mean, some people think they're better than the Beach Boys. <laughs> I, I'm not. You know, I don't know who. Yeah, Sticks was Sticks was at their height when I was in high school, and my uh, best friend was a big. Sticks was one of his favorite bands. There's like Sticks, there's Super Tramp, Kansas, Boston, all these guys in the same era. Um, it's sort of this. You, you have to sort of see the band. I don't care if it is a guilty pleasure. It's a pleasure for me. I enjoy that. You sort of have to song. see the see the band and what they look like and stuff to appreciate the full. Okay. Well, we can move on from the sticks. Here. I just, the, I was... it's, it's sticks. The S T. It's <laughs> okay. not the sticks. Fine. It's sticks. S T Y X. As Why in the would river you sticks. Want to be named after pieces of wood. It's and not branches. those I don't, sticks. S T Y X. It's a Greek term from from mythology. Maybe drumsticks. Sticks is the river. One of the rivers that borders around hell. Okay. And uh, in the That's, afterlife, okay. you cross the river sticks. Anyways, it was stuck in my head. The Chris, band is called Sticks, not the Sticks. Chris, you had a very very cool news this week. You got a fifty inch TV. 
Yes! 50-inch no, TV! 50-inch, no, yay! 50-inch TV! Um, I'm just plagued by this. You know, one of the this things that... This one is of the, great news. One of the sad, sad, <laughs> sad aspects of our culture it's is this overemphasis on our media. Yeah. Overemphasis on, on the TV culture. It's just, I spend... I, I'm embarrassed to say how much time I... Come on, you're gonna watch movies watch in TV. style, you know? I'm yeah, just... movies are one thing I, I watch way too much TV and and Bigger I is better, I just hate this whole idea of how important the, the size, size of your TV has has become <laughs> and the fact that <laughs> how much technology is gone how this much is only TV a good thing I, I see this as only positive stuff uh, going on it's just That's all I'm saying phone cell phones got smaller TVs got bigger okay. this, is, this is how stuff works when I was about five years old smaller when I was about smaller. five years old they started broadcasting TV in color and that was a big deal. Everybody had black and white TVs, and when you got your color TV, and then you still were watching a bunch of these shows that were most of the programming was still in black and white, and so only you know you got your new color TV, and only you know when a show came on that was actually in color, yay! It was so exciting. You didn't pay for your t for, to watch TV. You buy your TV <laughs> once, and you got your signal through an antenna, and uh, and you you get like. Yeah, get like get like a handful of channels and stuff. But the but the transition from black and white to color, that was a dramatic life changing event <laughs> where you could color. see where you could see like, you know, blood, stuff that was recognizable as blood wow. flowing. Or you could see what color people's eyes were, where you could see sunsets no and more stuff that were syrup. Yeah, you could see yeah, sunsets and and, and uh and identify all these different you know all these different things in a in the picture on that you watched on T V. That was dramatic. Now you get flat screen, big deal flat screen over, over the curved screen in the in the CRT tube, and when we've I'm just got giving you kudos high, for the high def inch, and all this know, thing. There's cool. a relatively small innovations compared to the <laughs> life altering, life altering innovation of color. of color broadcasting instead <laughs> of black and white TV. Um, yeah, no. That, <clears throat> so I. All this stuff. Every three years, you gotta buy a new TV to get the better sound, the newest sound, and the yeah. right amount of pixels, and it's the fun. and the better display, and the, the the shape is the right thing. Or you go, you know, you can't have, <laughs> you gotta have the LED one because that saves you know two dollars. Well, we get a lot of two dollars of electricity so every month over over the LCD or the plasma or whatever it is. Uh, yeah, no, we got we did get a new TV, but I'm not proud of getting a new TV. That's not like a life altering <laughs> event for me. <laughs> I know. Um, Chris, I, uh, we watched, uh, we watched Almost Famous this, this yeah. one time, and I had, uh, this thought occurred to me the first time when I, when I saw it again, Yeah, it recurred, it occurred to me that, um, you know, Russell keeps refusing this interview. William was trying to interview oh, yeah, him multiple times, right. he keeps procrastinating and putting we, it we, off. We, we spent a good, we spent a podcast doing Almost Famous, and we both love this movie so much. Yeah. And, um... And this was my one takeaway uh, this time, was that by refusing uh, to do the interview, it forces William's hand that he has to write all this other stuff in the Rolling Stones article about this house party they visit and, and these parties and stuff that's going on. I think William was trying to fill the article with something, with information. But no, really, no, no, because he, he, he had all his notes and stuff, but he didn't start to write the article... Didn't actually start write the thing that the Rolling Stones saw that forced Russell's hand until after the plane crash. Yeah. Because remember, he he got into Rolling Stone 
He got into Rolling Stone. It was after the or, or, the plane didn't crash, but the plane incident where everybody had all these confessions in the plane that mm-hmm. William heard. Um, that got everything got exposed about everybody was doing everybody else's girlfriend, and you know the the bass player was gay, and and all this stuff. But the thing was is that um, well, all William had sent to Rolling Stone. Um, even when he got to San Francisco, all that Rolling Stone had were all these little notes and scraps of paper that he had made notes for. He hadn't done a proper interview with but Russell. But he said, give me the night and I'll Yeah, give me the r- night and I'll put the story together. Yeah, and, and he wrote, and, and Russell had told him. Then after they the, fact-checked and they denied everything. And they all denied they it when they saw what he had written, right. And, and But when he went to write it, Russell had told him, it was right after the plane crash, all the band, everybody realized, you know, what a crap deal they had, or what a crap, what a crap, thing the whole band was how much they really hated each other how little they really respected each other that they were all doing each other's girlfriends that you know all of them considered you know had had undermined the other one to one degree or another you know they that russell and uh, i forget the singer's name is uh jason lee's character but that those guys really hated each other yeah um and all the stuff was revealed they're walking through the airport they're all it's splitting like up and going their own amateurs. directions <laughs> russell turns around and and looks at him and goes right you know write whatever you want you know, go you, you can write it all it gives him he gives him carte blanche to write the whole thing yeah he's just disgusted with the whole situation and having to live all these lies all this time and so when william gets to william uh, gets to san francisco and he's confronted with um a rolling stone and they're all pissed off he's like what have you got here it's all just scraps you know, this is not this is not what you promised us. And he says, "Yeah, I haven't had a chance to write anything down yet. Let me give me the night, and I'll type it up." He goes, "I've got it. You know, you just got to give me. You know, you know, I got the story." Yeah. He goes, "I I told you know what I described you. I've got the story. I haven't been able to type it up." And so that's when he and, and so that's his mindset. Is that Russell's giving him the okay, and he's got all this stuff. The thing, um, and he and he goes and he writes the story. Russell betrays him and says, "No, that's not what happened." All the guys deny it. Yeah, uh, even though he writes the truth and he writes a great story that Rolling Stone loves, and then he's undermined because you know Rolling Stone says, "Hey, this is just a kid," and he's written all these lies, and now we can't, you know, we can't play it. They won't back us play. And, well, and so my own personal theory is that the Russell interview is the most important thing. Uh, he's the he he writes most of the songs. He right. he's the he's most the important guy. guy in the band. Well, and he doesn't want to open up. He, he goes through the every time he starts to talk to. Talk to um, William. What's the guy's name in the? F- yeah, William. William. Every time he starts to talk to William, he's afraid he's going to be too truthful. He starts to tell him something, and he's like, "Yeah, you're the enemy." You know, well, we don't really talk about this. Give me, you know, off the record. He starts telling stuff like, "Off the record, yeah, we got, you know, we all got people that you know live other lives, and this is a lot of stuff that we can't talk about. So you got to be cool." And he's always asking him to be his buddy and promise him he's going to be cool. And- I get that, but. We see a few of William's questions yeah. that don't get answered. Yeah. And he says, do you have to be sad to write a sad song? Do you have to be in love to write a love song? Do you At have to the be very end when he finally... See- oh, oh, right. Yeah. yeah and, goes, but- and, well, and Russell's response is, when did you get so professional? Yeah, and he's like, we'll talk about it later. Yeah. You know? And at the very end, he says, what do you love about music? You right. Because he... For the start I, I, of everything. You, you, you see at the start that Russell's just going to handle this guy. And he, you know, he looks at William and he sees maybe this sort of high school kid that's writing for the school paper. He doesn't really see him as a Rolling Stone journalist. That's you know yeah. that's gonna that's gonna stick with him and stuff. And so he's gonna you know I think Russell's we we actually what we saw was like the director's cut. Yes. And we saw a couple of scenes that we hadn't seen in the original that were very important to the story. Yes. And there was a scene 
because because the whole idea that they're dragging this Rolling Stone writer William along on this tour. Yes. And so you know he's sort of their entertainment in a sense. In the in the original picture that we saw, the first the theater release that we saw, um, the question is what's you know Russell sort of likes this guy. He's he likes the kid because the kid flatters him. That's why they let him into the backstage originally when they first meet him. They let him in backstage. They weren't going to let him in. You say, you're the enemy. They kick him out. You can't get in. Ha, ha, ha. And then he says, yeah, you guys are, uh, uh, what's the name of the band? Black uh, Sabbath? No, no, no. Uh, uh, oh, Stillwater? Stillwater. You wrote Fever Dog, and he tells him why he likes the song Fever Dog and all this stuff. And so all of a sudden the band embraces him because he's, you know, he's kissing their ass. And so from the beginning... Um, they like having William around because he's sort of kissing their ass, and he's a fan. Yeah, he's a fan. And right, and he's and they and they're saying like, yeah, you, you know, Rolling Stone magazine is really dangerous. You know, they they criticized, you know, they Zeppelin. they blasted every <laughs> Zeppelin album ever, and they go, of course, it would be kind of cool to get on the cover, you know. So they're like, you know, they're sort of ambivalent about whether you know what's what could happen to them if they get an article written about Rolling Stone. So it's not like they want to have them on there. Because they can get to have any article in Rolling Stone, they're they're sort of unsure about what you know about where they stand with Rolling Stone. The reason why in the first movie you get the impression they like having him along is because Russell and William are sort of connecting somehow. You know, William's sort of posing as this fan, and he's telling Russell things that he likes to hear, and Russell feels like he's really important because he's got this interview to do. But he keeps dragging the kid along, and he won't quite do the interview, and he can't quite find the right mood that he wants to be in to be interviewed. And it's really... Especially as an older male figure. Right, and it's really a shitty way to treat another adult that you respect. You wouldn't do that to, to somebody that you respect. You wouldn't make them go week after week after week sort of leading them on on this thing. Um... He, uh, you can kind of think that, well, for William, it's not the worst deal. He's on the road with a rock band, and he gets to be cool, and there's all these girls, and there's this you yeah, know, drugs, and, and all this adventure and stuff like that. He gets to see all this stuff, and, and which is true. And so, but at the end of the day, you know, William has to keep, keeps getting these phone calls from his mom and from, and, from and, and from Rolling Stone wanting to know what's going on, and he's like all tortured because he hasn't even got the interview with the most important guy in the band that he wants. And <clears throat> and he's really frustrated uh, towards the end. Now, what they didn't show you in the theater version that they did put in this one little bit in the in the director's cut that we saw is there's a scene where they're checking into the hotel and um, the girls, there's they call them the band-aids, but the girls yeah. are there at the desk. And, they can't get a room, and they don't have they don't have any money for a room. They're asking about who's got a credit card or something like that. They can't get a room. William's room. William gets a room that's comped by Rolling Stone. Yes, and they make a point of that. Don't let them pay for anything. Right early, yeah, at the beginning, yeah, when Russell when he first gets the when he first gets he gets the he gets the the he first talks to um, Rolling Stone. Um, yeah, ben to Wong, Ben Fong Torres. Ben Fong Torres. Yeah, yeah, he tells him, "Okay, we'll give you, you know, okay, a thousand dollars, you know, uh, but don't let the band pay for anything. In other words, you're gonna, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna give you an expense account. We're gonna pay for your room and your food and, and you know, your travel expenses and stuff like that. So, so he's checking into the hotel room, and lo and behold, all the girls stay in his room. Yeah. So without his room, uh, where would the girls be staying on this trip, right? They could stay. That's advantageous to the band members. It's advantageous to the band because 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 they either have to do without the girls, 
or they have to put the girls up in their rooms, which is not always the best thing because, you know, they go do a different show. They want different girls at each show. They want to have, you know, they want to have, and they want their privacy at times, and they, you know, they want to be able to pick and choose which girls. They don't want to have a girl stuck in their room. So for the each of the band members to have their own, you know, have their own rooms that they have to themselves and to be able, but still have their, you know, to still have their groupies, you know, I didn't want to call them groupies, but they're groupies. Yeah. But to still have their groupies on the trip with them, you know, that doesn't cost them anything to put the groupies in the bus and travel with them and to be backstage or anything like that. But when they get to the town, they, the groupies got to take showers and they, you know, they got to get dressed and they got to have a place to, you know, where they got to be able to get their clothes washed and all the stuff that the band does. Sure. Uh, and they don't want all these, you know, all the groupie underwear in, in with the bands, you know, in the band's room. That's not cool if you bring, you know, some other, you know, girl backstage. You're, sure. Uh, so, but now they have the Rolling Stone guy. Oh, we'll put all the groupies in his room. And that works out great. Then the band doesn't <laughs> have to pay for it. We got, you know, we got, a, you know, what was it, four girls or whatever. Yeah. To be groupies. So they're there on the road to, you know. And, and so that was the sweet deal. So, of course, that's why they want... You know, especially because the one girl is 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 in it with um, uh, Crud Up's yeah, character Penny with Lane. Russell. Yeah, Penny Lane is she's with Russell. She she needs to have a room, uh, but not be locked into Russell's room. Russell can come and go as he wants and kick her out of his room when it's time. But um, but she gets to have a room, and and so and so at a couple of points in the story, you know, later on you see uh, there was some other girl that they hooked up with Sapphire, one of the other girls that they'd had previously. Oh yeah, can she stay in your room? You know, yeah, add her. Put her yeah, of course. It doesn't cost yeah. them anything else to stick another girl in that room. So you know, and then when they're de- you know they're bored, deflower him. You know, he's trying to work and he's trying to write his story. and He's stuck in the bathroom. <laughs> the girls are coming in. The Penny Lane comes in to pee. You know, he's still working in the bath. He hasn't got any other place to <laughs> go because the morning. girls are all over the, all over the bouncing off the beds and doing drugs in the other room and chatting and stuff like that. He can't get any peace. So he's got his own room that Rolling Stones paid for, but he hasn't got the use of it because it's it's full of groupies, <laughs> the tour group for the right. band. So to go back to my point, Chris, yes. if William got the Russell interview, the article would have looked different than what he wrote. Right. If he'd gotten a Russell, that's interview, all I'm saying. Oh yeah, yeah. If he'd gotten the Russell, especially he, if he'd gotten the Russell, he cared interview, more about these deep questions than he did about the gossip and the parties. And well, the, the more whatever. time he spent on the road with them, the more of this insight he got into Russell's relationship with Penny Lane. So the more he yes. understood, the more insight he had, regardless of what Russell tells him, he sees how Russell's treating Penny Lane, especially when they get near the end of the tour towards New York, and Russell, um, you know, dumps Penny Lane off and sends all the groupies on to this other band because they can't afford to fly, you know, they won't fit in the plane that they've got now instead of the bus. So they trade away the girls for a case of beer and what was it, and something else. Yes, I, I think, let's focus like a laser beam yeah. for a moment. He wants to know about Russell's philosophy, what he loves about music, music yeah. what his process is, right. writing the stuff. Right. And because he doesn't have that information, he has to write about other stuff. Right. That's all I'm saying. He's writing about who the band is as characters. He's writing about how the band's developing and the relationships and this touring and all this sort of back scene yes. stuff. Exactly. But he wants to include this other stuff, but he needs the interview to do it. You know, that, that's... He, to, to make it about the music. He, yes, yes. He does. Okay. He that's all I'm to, saying. Yeah, right. Because otherwise it's just his observations about the band on tour, uh, which is not a bad story. It's just like, to authenticate yeah, the story, you want to, you want, you want to quote... Yeah, you want to quote the guys that are... Okay, so, um, have you heard of this Steve Wozniak guy? Yeah. You know this guy, Wozniak? Oh, yeah, this is brilliant. Wozniak's one of the heroes of tech. My 
my personal biggest hero of technology, maybe one of the one of the handful of guys most responsible for people having computers in their homes. Yeah, so for having access, meaningful access to the internet. Well, yeah, so you know, we heard part of this interview with him, and I had a few uh, takeaways from it. Yeah, which was he he invented color for computers. I, which I think they mentioned. Uh, he didn't exactly invent it, but he made it. He made it practical first. He was the first guy to to get it cheap enough. He, he came up with his own system um, to put it into a home computer, and without his system, it would have been so expensive. It would have been, you know, probably another decade or so before it would have been. Okay, I thought before it was just either the the green screen or the black and white, but that he brought color. You could have put. Yeah, no, he, what he said was, yeah, I was listening to the same interview that you were, we were listening to this great interview of Wozniak, and, and this was one of the innovations he was most proud of, is yeah, that... Yeah, he was the first guy to use yeah, color. Yeah, you could have, they had, t- they, yeah, they had color could, TV, could they had color TV, yeah. and they had, a, they had a way, on the bigger computers, the mainframe computers, they had a way for the, to, for the computer to manipulate color images on a screen. But it was a really complicated process that used a lot of expensive chips and a lot of circuitry and stuff. And he found a shortcut way to do it to analyze. He he, he designed a circuit that um, used the, that digitized the signal from the chip, the audio frequency, and shortcut the process and yeah, made it completely really affordable on a home computer, where it would not otherwise have been affordable for a home computer. Would have you know it would have been only the business computers could use it. But when you put it in a home computer, that's what one of the cool one of these innovations that put Apple's computer so far ahead of all its competitors uh, gave the Apple computers a whole new market because now with color you can do uh, really cool games, you can do art, you can do graphics, mm, yeah. you can do all this other stuff where the computer uh, was not relevant to that stuff before. And you said that those video games really helped popularize computers, right? Because the video Even if games, it's Galaga or Pong or right, the, stuff. with the video games. You weren't just selling to guys that were programmers and these sort of math geeks and science geeks. Everybody wanted to play um, video games. So even if it was even if it was just an Atari setup, yeah. uh, you know, Atari game setup. Even if it wasn't a legit home computer, um, a lot of the chips and the the circuits, um, the memory chips and all st- were still stuff um, that the computers used. Um, there were, you know, there were computer chips, and even if it was just a games device, in it, and when you have a market that's virtually everybody, all teenage kids, instead of just the, you know, ten percent computer geeks of society, yeah, that definitely or fifty percent, your market is so huge. Now you've got the large scale integration of sales. You, it, it costs, it costs uh, almost the same to make one computer chip as it does to make like a couple thousand computer chips. The expensive part is the design and the initial setup, and dialing in the chip. You know, it's like like pressing a record. Yeah. You know, once you once you make the initial molds, you press hundreds or thousands off of the mold. Yeah, um, I thought it was cool that he. But if you can't sell those, mm-hmm. you know, then it's extremely expensive to, for that one chip that you you know for those handful of chips that you can sell. When you're doing the games, and now you're selling thousands of these chips. Now the price per chip goes so far down. Now, now, okay, now instead of the price being, you know, a couple hundred dollars for each of these chips, they're, you know, down 15 bucks. And so then the price of the next computer goes way, way down. My my mind is blowing <laughs> with that info. Uh, Wozniak, he's an inspiring guy. I liked, 
he liked working at HP even when yeah. he was doing Apple. Right. He was loyal to HP. I think that was a cool yeah. aspect that he tried to stay with them as long as right. possible. That he wrote basic for Apple. He got he got frustrated. Yeah. I think at he mentions that uh, on Apple on his own, which he was basically doing on his own time for his own fun. He was designing whole, you know the whole computer. He was you know he was pro design. He was he was. Uh, uh, he was using the chips and assembling a whole computer, designing and building a whole computer, doing all the programming, um, yeah, you know, designing all the devices HP and the connections point. and the I.O. and all this stuff. And he had trouble at HP getting even on one of these design teams that would do even one of those aspects at HP. You know, He was designing a whole computer basically by himself, designing and building it, assembling it, soldering it on his own, on his own time. At HP, they, he was having a hell of a time just getting on... Any team that was, you know, any whole team of engineers, just being one of those members of a team of engineers that was designing one little aspect of one of HP's computers. And so he kind of got frustrated that he couldn't do what he wanted to do at HP, you know, that he was designing yeah. on, on his own time. And um, it, what, what I took away from it was just the sheer happiness of working long hours on a project. Oh, yeah. That's your project that you're yeah. passionate about and curious about and interested in. And he was wanting He to had be- such a fulfillment from working these long hours. Right. He built the original Apple not because he, he saw himself, you know, getting rich or having a, this great career as a result of owning his own company, you know, being at the forefront of his own company, he designed it because he wanted the computer. He wanted to have the computer. He wanted to build a computer that was it affordable and practical. talks about why him and his team were the perfect age to do it. Yeah. You know, they had the time, they had the interest. Well, you basically had no social life. You know, when these engineers, that was the mentality of all the Silicon Valley guys. Work was everything. You know, 80, 70, 80, 90 hours a week you're working. That was your life. Uh, you know, they're, the, the, the story of the industry is that these guys... Their marriages don't last, you know. They some of them have a shot if they or marry. Or don't exist. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, they get married and their marriages crash because they're never home. Um, they they don't do, you know they don't spend any time with their family. They're working six seven days a week. Um, some of the guys in Silicon Valley would marry female engineers. You know, if they found somebody else that had, was in a similar field and they you know spend more time with them that way, they had more to discuss. The, there was more of a relationship. But there's so few female engineers. There's so you know there's like not enough to go around. So, yeah. So most of these guys through their early twenties and stuff like that, they 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 don't really have meaningful relationships. You know, everything's just work, and uh, and that's the kind of dedication they're they're so involved. They find I guess they find the work so satisfying, to a degree, um, that they're in on this stuff. So Wozniak, but Wozniak, yeah, it was cool that he could find happiness. Doing Wozniak that. enjoys engineering for the sake of engineering. He's one of the rare guys in the engineering field, though, that can relate to non-engineers. Um, he found a good business partner in Steve Jobs. Jobs is an engineer. Wozniak said he had, as far as an administrator, and and you know, and salesman, you know, marketer, um, which is really what drives the company. You know, at the end of the day, if you can't sell a product, then there's no point in engineering it or building it. Um, uh, but he said the compliment that he gave to Steve Jobs was that as far as a marketer and visionary guy and, and administrator, he was a guy that had a stronger grasp of the engineering stuff. He could program a little bit maybe, hmm. but he understood what the engineers were talking about more so than you know than his counterparts at other companies, than the other guys that were making these sort of business decisions. Um, you know, for yeah, the they were a good uh, yin and yang sort of dynamic. Yeah, and what Wozniak said about... 
he said about HP, what, what he liked that is it was engineering. They were engineering products for engineers. The stuff that they mm. built was, you know, mostly test equipment and devices that was going to be for other engineers. And so what was unique about HP, maybe not as much today, but at least back when Wozniak was at it, was that they didn't have the sort of overhead, these marketing guys and business deciders that weren't engineers making yeah. their decisions about what the product should look like and, you know, who they were going to sell to and, you know, what the scope of the product was and trying to understand, you know, how to sell their product and how to market their product and, you know, and making the decisions about, you know, what their budgets would be. It was, they were making it for other engineers, so all the engineers sort of understood what the goals were and, and you know, how the product should be built. Jobs worked a lot with investors as well. He did. He worked with investors. He, he'd have vision for the company. He he knew what the product should look they like. They kept naming one guy, but I forget his name. There was another guy the that's yeah. There's another guy. That's what Wozniak said, Wozniak said was was crucial to the company. That never gets enough credit. It was Marcus. What was his name? Marcuson. Yes. Yeah, or Marcus yeah. or something like that. And he's like the silent partner, but he was really critical. He was a guy that he was a guy that brought in all the money to the company. the the first The first Apple computer that they built. Um, that came out. It wasn't before the Apple II. What they did was they sold about 400 of them, but they were all com they were all computers that Jobs of Wozniak soldered together and assembled in their garage. Yeah. And they were selling them to you know home computer you know enthusiasts, the home computer club, and these guys that were you know sort of hobbyists is how you know they described yeah. them. They, they, they were they were maybe guys that were engineers, or you know you know basically I mean just geeks. Because they, they were computers that didn't really have a... There wasn't a whole lot you could do with them if you didn't know how to program. <laughs> mm -hmm. If you didn't know how to write computer code, which, you know, nobody did. And that wasn't something that was fun in itself. You you know, you, if you were a programmer, then you could develop a game. But the computer, you know, the early computer only came with one or two games. And they were all in, you know, black and white, this goofy... Is there you anything know. you found interesting in the interview? There's a lot you, of stuff. You probably knew. Wozniak is such a colorful, well-rounded guy. He's really the full Renaissance guy. Um, he's he's probably if you had to name like one guy that's responsible for home computers, it's probably Wozniak. And what he said was in the interview that was interesting is the computer, the first Apple computer, the Apple One and the Apple Two, were basically computers that you know he basically designed almost the whole computer himself and programmed. You know, did everything top down, and his approach was, his his priorities were that he wanted a computer that you could use in your house. So in that sense, it wasn't for business; it was for home use, um, and so it had to be cheap. You couldn't build something that was for a hobby that was going to cost ten thousand or twenty thousand or fifty thousand dollars, which is what you know the cheaper business computers cost was fifty, sixty thousand, seventy thousand dollars. Um, you know, which had to be stuff something that was efficient, that was practical for collecting all this data. It was something that you could program for. You know, the hobbyists, the early hobbyists could use, and he wanted to incorporate as many features into it as he could that made it sort of fun. Wozniak liked music. He liked telling jokes. Very social guy, fun guy. Liked education. Liked sharing. He, he liked people. He's a people person, and the bulk of engineers are not. Mm, yeah. <laughs> engineers are technical people. They explain devices. They talk in terms of things. But they have trouble, most engineers, especially back then, had a lot of trouble communicating anything to non-engineers. But mm -hmm. Wozniak just gen genuinely enjoys people. He's, you know, his, his, one of, a lot of the things that he does now 
is he's going around to schools and he likes to you know deal with kids and stuff. And he has a lot to say about education and problems with the education. Well, he presented process. at the homebrew meeting back in the day. Right. You know, he was this bridge. But he's a guy that's fun to talk to, to even if you're not an engineer. He has a way of describing things in non-technical terms and understanding just the joys of life outside of engineering. Yeah. You know, he likes music. He likes pictures. He likes art. He celebrates creativity. And he, and, and a lot of engineers find it tough to embrace that in other, in other kids because the engineers, everything that they ex- express is in mathematical and technical terms. And yeah. and and so when somebody doesn't speak that language, uh, they have a you know a lot of engineers will have trouble you know sharing stuff. If you ask them a question, they they answer in engineering jargon. They talk in terms of megabytes and and uh, and hertz and you know and and you know Remember, megawatts and um, stuff. Whereas whereas Wozniak sort of grasps the question, understands where you're coming from, and gives you an answer that makes more sense. Remember in Lords of Dogtown, there was the one guy who would make all the surfboards. Right. And in the end, they show him, he's just listening to music, still doing the surfboards, he's in his zone, and it's Oh, like, yeah, he's working for somebody else. At the, at the end, he loses his surf shop. Uh, yeah. It was Keith Ledger's character. Um, yeah, he was... But he's, uh, like, still doing his thing. Yeah. You know, he was happy to make these surfboards and, say, and stuff. So, like, that's who you want to be. Yeah. At the end of the day, Wozniak's happy, kind of in a shop, doing his thing. Well... Like the surfboard guy. Yeah, yeah. He enjoys engineering that's just for parallel. the engineering... He, it, it's yeah, but he's but what Wozniak said that that's that was Wozniak's perspective on computers is that he enjoyed he enjoyed building the computer and having the computer and he wanted to share that sort of experience with everybody and he wanted so he wanted to make the computer affordable. Everybody else in that day, all the other comp, the companies that were making computers, Xerox and IBM and Dutch and yeah, HP wasn't really I don't know if they were making computers then, but all the other companies that were making computers. They were all making computers for business. And the guys at the head of the companies, these were like major companies that had boards uh, and um, CEOs and this big executive structure that was on the East Coast. And business was done. Um, and, and data, you know, computers were used to assemble these huge tables. And they had very limited applications because you didn't, you know, you had to know all the, in order to work a computer, you had to, you know, go to, you had to, for years, on the, on the big business computers, you had to learn all the languages and, and programming stuff, and it took a long time just to learn, be able to use them. The, the minimum cost, I think HP came out with a computer they tried to sell to the public for around $10,000 in the late 60s. $10,000 was a house back then. Wow. And the only the only use they could think to sell it to, they marketed it in uh, popular electronics or something, but they're trying to sell it to housewives and tell them, well, this, you can use this computer, you can put all your recipes on it. <laughs> so they're going to replace a, yeah, you know, a 50-cent index box with index cards <laughs> with this $10,000 computer. So, you know, that wasn't going to fly. But that's, that was their issue, is that why would anybody want, you know, the, 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 the heads of the, of the major computer companies back in the day, their perspective was, why would people want a computer in their home? It's it's only for businesses where they're assembling this massive amounts of data. That's what their computer was. Nobody goes and plays on a computer for fun. And so when they went to build a computer, they'd think in terms of these huge budgets and the, there was no way they could, you know, turn turn dozens of engineers loose on this project to sell a product that that could possibly sell for less than 10 or $20,000. There was, you know, it didn't make sense to think that they were going to sell, you know, hundreds of thousands of them you know, or or more than a thousand of them, you know, more than two thousand of them, 
you know. Okay. Uh, Closing thoughts on Wozniak. Just a brilliant guy. Brilliant he's, guy. He's, he's him and Jobs were the guys that had the vision that they were gonna, uh, that they were gonna hand technology over to the people, and give people this alternate lifestyle, where instead of, um, instead of your life was your job and you sort of had this, you know, place in this little spot in society, this sort of cubbyhole, this pigeonhole in society where your, you know, your identity was who, what company you worked for and what level of management you were. Was now you're gonna you can have a computer you can build you can create you can communicate with other people um, you can be your own boss mm-hmm. you can you can choose your own lifestyle uh, you know the world is whatever you want to make out of it um, you don't have to be this conformist and dress in this white shirt and tie like the you know everybody at IBM in these corporate societies uh, so that was their gift to the world was the independence and and you know basically they've as a result, they produced the iPhone. They've everybody's independent now. You people communicate, share pictures, share their life through companies like Facebook and and Google and stuff all day long. You know, we're communicating and sharing our adventure, cool. our lives so, with everybody all over the world. Thanks to Wozniak and Jobs, we will and move Marcus on. or whatever that guy's name was. Well, so, <laughs> we will move on from that yes. with a musical segue. So, I saw this on Esquire this week. This might be of interest to you. It's an anniversary of sorts. Uh, June 3rd, 1965, which was a few days ago, um, astronauts James McDivitt and Edward White II embark on United States' first multi-day space flight. During the mission, White became the first American to float through the universe's dark vacuum. Yeah. Today we commemorate the 50th anniversary of this pivotal space race moment. This is the first guy to get out of the capsule into zero-G space, float around, do what they call them EVAs now, extravehicular activity. Um, yeah. This, this, was, this was amazing. Amazing stuff back then. Um, the space race was a big deal. Had to do, well, a large part of it had to do with the Cold War. Here, let me read you this first, yeah. and then you can comment. In 1962, White was one of nine men chosen as part of the second group of NASA astronauts. As one of the top flyers in the group, he was an obvious choice for Gemini 4 in the first space walk. Mm. Luckily for us, half a century later on Lokers, NASA had captured, planted... So No, sorry. <laughs> NASA had cameras planted to capture this journey. Yeah. Okay. So, um, the second group, so that's cool. Yeah, we, we, me and Caleb watched, um, The Right Stuff, which is yeah. this great sort of chronicle. This is all about It's more than a documentary, you have these characters, much. you get to see all these characters in this dramatic, uh, replay of the events and the attitudes and the type of guys that, you know, went in the first, in the, uh, Mercury program. Um, as well as a lot of the events, the uh, breaking of the sound barrier and all the stuff out at Edwards and this sort of culture. That oh, here goes we go, on. Chris. I'm going to cut you off because I was trying to think what's the importance of of the Gemini four right. four, and it's this Gemini four spaceflight had a number of missions. One, evaluate the effects of prolonged exposure to a space environment. Two, catch up with the Russians who had spacewalked that March. Three, rendezvous with the Titan rocket's second stage. 
malfunctions prevented the crew from completing the third task. Yeah. So it's kind of you know the second wave of of this space stuff. So yeah. There you go. I thought you might enjoy that. Yeah, these guys are just pushing the boundaries of technology. They were risking their lives um, doing this stuff. Um, it had, a lot of it had to do with the Cold War and the idea that we didn't want to get, you know, that the Russians were out there putting up satellites and establishing a, a presence in space, and we didn't want them putting up some, you know, giant weapons out there that was going to give them an edge. This is interesting. For the Gemini mission, the spacesuits had greater mobility. G4C spacesuits removed fabric joints from the Mercury mission suits and reconfigured life support technology. Right, and the Mercury mission, they stayed so. inside the capsule the whole time so they didn't have to worry about vacuum. And so this was the first space walk, uh, they're yeah. saying. First time they're, right, exactly. The first time they go But on not the on the moon, so what are they walking on? They're just outside the spaceship oh, floating outside, around. Okay. They're yeah. outside floating around, but they're inside the spaceship. The spaceship is all it. sealed. Yeah, okay. So while there's zero G inside the spaceship, they still have oxygen and everything. So, okay, yeah. So, so when they go outside the, suits the spaceship, had to be really good. the suits yeah, really... had to be sealed to contain the oxygen. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, it gets ugly fast. So that is a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big I deal. Mean, the idea that you have... It's one thing to have a... 50th anniversary of being outside. Right. It's one thing to have all your oxygen the thing, sealed. The capsule. <laughs> right. It's one thing to have all your oxygen sealed inside this steel capsule. It's another thing that uh, if you get like the smallest tear in your suit, the smallest hole in the fabric of your suit, yeah, the vacuum screwed. just sucks out all your oxygen and you, you know, you die this horrible, awful death relatively quick, quickly. Yeah, see, that's interesting. Uh, if something goes wrong and you, you, you lose, uh, you, you, you become separated from the, from the capsule for some reason, you, you know, you're, you have a, I think they had tethers and stuff like that, but if for some reason you think you're tethered, you're connected and you're not, and all of a sudden you start drifting away. Uh, that's another really ugly scenario too, where you you know you just drift off and there's no way to to go get that guy. That guy's lost. I think you know they had the scenes in Gravity where they had that issue. But yeah, so this was a huge deal. The the Gemini. You had the, the first the first astronauts and it were was the a Gemini Four first mission to be controlled from Houston. Right. Wow. Right, that's what we saw at the end of uh, The Right Stuff, was they had that big ceremony in Houston because they were building mission control. Oh, see, yeah. Before that, they were at Cape Canaveral. Is... This is right after that, Chris. Right. See? But it all the... ties together. 25-foot umbilical, umbilical line, 23 additional feet of tether line. Yeah. Where all that stood between White and his own version of gravity. Right. So, I mean, you know, you're risking your life. Oh, exactly. <laughs> no. Exactly. They, I mean, they don't know what's going to happen. You'll float forever. Yeah. No, the si if you ask a scientist, oh, there's this much radiation coming, and from the sun is this light, and this and that. But but this guy has never been there to experience it, right? So the yeah. astronaut's the first guy. They say I can go out there in this suit. They say they've tested it. <laughs> Nobody has. But these guys are good until the guy gets out, you know, <clears throat> goes through the airlock and gets outside the, the capsule. You you don't really you know know what's gonna happen. Yeah, the um, the the visor was protected the uh, unfiltered rays of the sun. Yeah, they had like a layer of gold to reflect the yeah uh, or some kind of gold shielding or something in there to protect them from that's the radiation. And I think this was the first time like a lot of photos were taken. That's that's what I'm sort of gathering. Right. 
mean, I guess if you're outside, you can actually. They didn't exactly have digital cameras your, back yes. then. These, so, so they, you know, it wasn't. They, you know, I mean, they might have had Polaroid cameras, but that's. I'm not sure that's not, not what they were using on the space flight. So you, you got to remember, they're taking, they're taking pictures. Uh, they had there was TV cameras for the TV cameras to work. Then they have to have these massive dish antennas to get the telemetry, you know, because they're sending a TV signal back. Um, but uh, uh, but actual photos, it's on film, and so you know or your your parents will know. But with film camera, you take a you take a picture and you cross your fingers because you don't know what the hell is on that picture until you get that film developed. You know, which could be a week or two weeks later, and hopefully it came out okay, and not like digital cameras where you can see exactly what you know the image you have. Yeah, I mean, it landed in the Atlantic Ocean. It looks like it was up there for for three years. If it was from sixty two to sixty five. No, it wasn't the same ship up there. They were up there. They, they were, the program oh. lasted. They oh, the over program. those three years. Over those three years, they launched you know a handful of rockets, made a, a bunch of different expeditions. But each they were saying couple, one one or two. It was the first one to go more than one day. They'd be up there two three days or so. That makes more sense, yeah. Chris. You're right about that. You know, that's a good point. Little known fact, that's about the Gemini 4, that song. Oh, so, right, know. David Bowie song, right. Yeah, no, I just made that up. I don't know. If it's <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> David Bowie. Something. David Could Bowie, be. Space Um, Chris, something else I wanted to mention is we, we saw this cool little documentary film, Downloaded, which was about Napster. Sort of the rise and fall of Napster. This was a great... And this was really interesting to me, Chris, because it was a time, like, the people who set up Napster, they themselves didn't steal any music. They were not uploading CDs. So they were this bridge for other people well, they to weren't... file share with each other to get this music. Well this this is what was interesting. This is what was That was my takeaway. Right. Well this is what well this is what was interesting is that yeah they said that what was phenomenal about the software that he that he wrote was it was a tool for sharing. Yeah. They weren't the the Napster guys, it's not like this this is what the record industry when they brought charges against them, what they accused them of doing is is taking their music and distributing it, mm-hmm. but Napster wasn't the guys that the guys that were behind Napster. That's not a, that's not what they were doing, exactly. They wrote a system of software where uh, it was like it was like making this massive digital bi- uh, billboard system, mm-hmm. so that uh, they they put up it's, it's like putting up all this internet equipment or providing even the software so that other people that had had uh, computers could download you know they convert their music put their music on the on their website using the software and other people could share it could come and take it and they could all share it. and so uh you know one guy would buy the album down you know convert it and record it in digital put it on the website you know, put it on his server yeah, and, and really, with, it's... and what the system was like—the system for for recording, for putting the music into a digital format that could be shared, and then yeah. everybody would could make a copy, could just click and make a copy yeah, like really you would any other any other file. It's more than one guy because because it's called right. seeds. How many seeds are is it for this album? Right, 
and, and then so you can take it from multiple right. locations. And, and Nap so while Napster had servers uh, that that people were you know posting music on, and then other people were copying it and sharing it, and making all these yeah, copies. Well, they so, did so keep the, the but they weren't alive. the only. But but what they found out was when they got ordered to shut off their server and they shut it off, Napster still continued to exist because other people had had. Uh, file take, share with each other. Right, had computers, had 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 their own computers, had their own servers all over the country, all over the world, that had got the the Napster software on it. Yeah. So okay. Napster no longer had control of Napster. The guys at Napster uh, that had that had designed this software, that had written this code and designed this system, um, even once they turned off their hardware, their their software had been copied and shared to this to the extent that. They didn't have. They couldn't stop other people from sharing it. You know, they sort of opened Pandora's box. Yeah. Uh, and the music industry, what they were, what they really, they couldn't understand what the technology was. What he had, what, uh, what they had invented. And so, what they thought was that you know Napster was, you know, getting all, buying these record albums, these cassettes or, or CDs or whatever it was. And posting them on this website, and then everybody, and then giving them away, you know, digital, making digital copies that everybody else was downloading. But that's not what Napster. Napster wasn't doing that themselves. They just made it possible for everybody else to do that. Yeah, and if if there is a demand, someone will supply it. And yeah. the demand was for digital singles. Right. The ability to to buy that and not buy an entire album. Right. And Napster met that demand. When nobody else was, and not only that, and um, because of that, that eventually led to iTunes. Right. I mean, well, that was the vision that uh, who was it? Sean Parker had the iTunes library. Sean yeah. Fanning and Sean Parker had. Um, what they did was they they cut the distribution cost down to nothing for distributing music. Um, and that was the vision he had that everybody could just sort of share this music. He uh, he was a music fan. Parker and Fanning they were music fans. They were people that enjoyed listening to different music. And, and telling their friends about it, it was part of their social life. Yeah. Was that you hear an album and you want to talk about it with your friends. When you hear a great song and, and, and you're alone and you hear that, what you think is, this is such a great experience, I want to share it with somebody. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you want to find other people that enjoy that same sensation, that talk, you know, it's a very emotional event. Yeah, um, this idea of sharing right, was already going on. find songs that really speak to you, that catch, capture a moment, capture an emotion. Uh, that put you in a certain place, and you want to share that with your friends, and that's what these guys were turned on to, and so they wanted a way to be able, you know, they didn't want to have to, you know, you have a you have a record album or a CD, and you hear a song, and it's in a moment, it's very important, you want to share that thing right now as it's happening, you don't want to have to, you know, find your friend where he's living, you know, cell, phone, uh, hmm. cell phones were just getting popular then, but to track down your friends, find out where they were, go meet them, and have to, you know, then, you know, it's an interesting take. Put it on a, yeah, yeah. Listen, find a stereo that you can both listen to the song on and then talk about it. You wanted to put them, get the music into their head right away. So through the internet, they knew it could be done. Um, and that's what they facilitated. Now, both of those guys thought, ultimately, they couldn't imagine that once they built the system, that the record industry would not embrace it. They, they, saw they thought it, someone would buy their technology. Right. They thought that they were going to have a... They, they didn't know anybody iTunes, in the recording industry. They didn't even know any bands. So they had no connection to anybody remotely related to the music industry. They didn't have a radio station that they were working for. They were just guys that were just strictly fans that loved music. And that's that's their story. And, and they thought that 
until they wrote the until they wrote the software and got it working on the internet, they didn't really have anything to pitch to the to the recording industry or to any of the bands or to try and sell to anybody. And they didn't know anybody. They didn't even have a route into it. They didn't know anybody that distributed music. They didn't know anybody at radio stations or anybody that that was going to help them uh, go down this route. They didn't have any, you know. So, but but they thought that they couldn't imagine that if they could find a way for to for people to share music with each other, that the record industry would not embrace that and find a business model where you know that would save the record industry huge amounts of money because now they didn't have to print individual CDs now they didn't have the expense of uh, all the distribution costs of of you well, know sales printing are going labels. down pardon sales are going down at this point for the record labels uh, and we uh, see the collapse of tower records and as a result stores. once Napster got on once 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 they put music free on the internet yeah. that's what that's what destroyed the record industry um, once, once they the music had it was already to, going down. Yeah. No, uh, I don't know. It wasn't. Um, music had gone digital with the CD. Yeah. And there was a lot of there were, at the time. You had the CD, and up until the late '90s, when they when they changed sort of the format and the and the quality of the digital music from 100. I think the early ones were like 198 kilobytes per second, and they changed it so they got more information, so the song sounded better. It, in the digital formats on the CDs, but the early ones, there was a huge complaint when the CDs first came out from from the you know guys like Neil Young and these early enthusiasts that said, you know, no, there's aspects of this music that's missing on the CDs. It sounds better on an album, you know, on the record in the full format in the analog format, and 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 they could hear the difference, um, and so. They weren't quite happy, you know. There were a lot of people that weren't exactly happy with digital music, but it had gone to the point where it was digital, and and. Well, Chris, I could be wrong, but my understanding was, people were mad that they were buying the same album for a third time. Right. And they're like, "Screw it! If I can get it for free, I've already bought this twice. Right. Well, I don't feel guilty about getting it for free." The now. process for the fan was: you heard the song on the radio, you heard the song yeah. on the radio. So yeah, you couldn't buy it as a single. The record company wanted to sell you an album. You wanted one song. They were charging you for ten on an album. It was you know fifteen bucks or something like that for for a vinyl album, which is the good quality. Uh, you could listen to that at home. That was the best way to listen. You know that was the way to hear the whole song to hear to hear it in its full um, and it's all its splendor. You buy a CD or a cassette. You know, this is we're talking the '70s, the '80s. You'd buy a cassette so you could listen to it in your car, yeah. or while you're jogging or walking or someplace. So now you bought it, it around twice. With you. So now you paid for it twice for the same music, not for one song, but again, yeah, eight to ten, ten, twelve bucks or whatever for the CD, fifteen bucks, ten, you know, twelve, fifteen bucks for an album, for the for the vinyl, and uh, and now the CD's coming out, um, and they're telling you that this is even better, and and uh, but you're seeing now, you know, with the CDs come out, it's like, well, how many times are we going to buy the same song, you know? Yeah, because people were ripping CDs and burning CDs for each other. Well, when they first came out, you couldn't. You'd just buy the CD player, and all you could do was listen to it. You couldn't create your own music. The the one thing about the cassette tape was you could make take the mixed tape. So with the cassette tape, you could you could record songs from, you know, one track from one album, another track from another album, and people would make these sort of mixed uh, mixed, how, mixed tape CDs. How come you couldn't rip the songs on your computer? 
because DVD, the early DVD players until the 90s, I don't CD remember, when, and the CDs, the early DVD players, they were only players. And the computers didn't, were, the computers didn't have uh, CDs in them in the 80s. CDs, came, I don't remember with CDs, when you had a CD drive oh. on your computer, but. Yeah, I was kind of thinking later than that. You had floppy drives 90s on 90s and late 90s. You had floppy drives on a computer, um, you know, but, but. Uh, yeah, but when Sean Fanning, that was like the when was it? That was like the late '90s. Those guys came out and did this thing, and so people had bought the. They stopped making you know albums. They'd gone to CDs, so now you had to buy the CDs. Even if you had albums and you had cassette tapes, you were buying CDs again, um, and and they weren't getting any cheaper. You were paying for a whole CD when all you know for twelve songs, and all you wanted was one. And the C, the record companies never made friends with anybody, and then the. In this documentary, we heard one of the lawyers when the when when um, it, it was really Napster that that put an end to the record industry. People used to go to record stores and they'd buy the music and they'd go in there and you could listen to some of the songs and stuff like that. But it was a big deal when you bought an album and you could take it home and you'd share it with your friends and your friends would listen to it. And you know you might buy you know however a handful of albums at a time or something like that. Um, but it was a big investment to own a hundred albums, thousand out. Al you know if you owned a hundred albums, you know. That's sixteen hundred, you know, sixteen hundred bucks or something like that, and more plus your stereo system and all this stuff. And now those weren't good, so you had to add the CDs. So you know, if you got like a record collection, couple hundred albums, and to have to buy it all on CD again, that's a major investment. And um, uh, but uh, when Napster came along and people were sharing all these songs, all of a sudden in one night, instead of having to you know go down to the record store, spend thirty or forty bucks just to get two or three albums, in one night you could download. You know, a dozen. It's true, the convenience. You could yeah. you could download fifty songs, the fifty songs that you wanted, not the one song. You know, not this one album that you only wanted one song from, and not this other album that you only wanted one track from, but fifty songs that were the these songs that you wanted all in one night for free. That's yeah. what pretty much put an end to the record industry within a couple of years, and all of a sudden these iconic buildings that had been there for generations, Tower Records, um, on Sunset of all places, right on the Sunset Strip there. Or not exactly in the on the meat of the Sunset Strip, but on Sunset Boulevard, um, uh, in the in the heart of Hollywood, and and that place is gone. That place disappeared, you know, handful of years later. Um, but all yeah. these record shops started disappearing and stuff because I used to go to the one down to Pingo all the time. Right, it's a cool place. Right, no, you go down there and you talk to other people that listen to. You saw somebody looking at the same records that you do. That you get into a meaningful conversation. You're there for half an hour, an hour. Mm -hmm. People would have record listening parties. You'd buy the latest Zeppelin album. You'd have all your friends over to listen to it. Yeah, and that was a big deal. You'd that listen to all the tracks. Needed. Yeah, uh, that was a huge deal. I mean, they're a very, very social event. Um, you got people walking around with Walkmans in the 80s, you know, listening to cassettes and stuff, and now you, you're listening to your music on a headphones or you're listening to your music in the car and on the radio and stuff like that. It starts to change because the party, you know, the you got fewer people, you got your closer friends and stuff like that. Um, and, and so, but now when you're back on the Internet and there's hundreds of people and you're all blogging about this stuff and sharing, everybody's sharing all these posts, hmm. and, and you got, like, the whole Internet, so you can find all the people that share the same feeling not just in your block on your street or in your in your class at school, but in the whole country, and they're all um, you know sharing their experiences. Oh yeah, I saw these guys on tour, and 
and this guy was so cool and I was amazed he didn't really do I thought he was gonna have all these exotic drugs and he didn't do drugs or he did do drugs or he, he you know we, we went over and you know he was, he was so excited about his new car there but but whatever all these very 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 personal stories and you're sharing them about your music and what it means to you and all these things mean on the internet and all of a sudden you're not alone in the small little town that you're in you're in the world and and this was a huge part of the music industry and and so it was uh, totally grabbed everything that the record stores had, but in heavy, heavy doses, just mainstreaming it into you, you know, um, and for free, for the technology yeah. you already had, you know. That's probably where the resurgence of vinyl came from. That we've seen this last five years. Right, right. Um, you know, that's well, the vinyl with the vinyl, you had this big picture, you know, this, and you'd have these sleeves and stuff that told you all this information. This little magazine that would sort of give you this insight into the band. So those things were special. Um, in the movie, we saw where the record industry was. When it became apparent that this was this was taking a big chunk of their business together, uh, the, what do they call it? The RIA, the Recording, Indus uh, the Recording Industry of American Arts or whatever, the recording... And RIAA is what it's called anyways. Yeah. Um, of American artists. Uh, and it's basically three or four... Uh, the the biggest labels controlled you know most of the recording industry, and so a lawyer got them all together and said, look, you know, there's going to need to be some action taken. Let's all get on board on, with this thing and get organized. And he said and he tried to get rep he got representatives all to the same meeting finally after you know it took him a month or so to deal with this whole Napster deal. But he said those guys were impossible to deal with. You couldn't get them to agree what day of the week it was. <laughs> That's right. They, they were so that. petty. Yeah. Uh, you know, about every little detail, like none of them could get together on the larger picture and realize, you know, that this was that this was a technology that they could embrace. And all they had to do was reach out to these guys and talk to these guys and they could come to some kind of settlement. Uh, and that if they didn't do that, they were in, you know, they were going to lose their whole industry, everything that they worked for. And, and the and the recording industry, the guys that these are like the business guys, these are the guys that had been ripping off artists. For generations, for for decades, back to the 40s, 50s, 60s, and they don't have the the artists. The artists are not a friend of the recording, you know, the recording mm. companies, the big corporations, the major labels. Um, the radio stations are not friends with the recording labels. Uh, like um, the guy from the Birds. Right. We talked about yeah, the guy from the Birds, and he, what was his, his big hit? Uh, turn, turn, turn. Yeah, I don't know if it was turn, 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 or one of his hits, one of his earliest hits. Um, but was saying that his, his he got an advance. He got a ten thousand dollar advance on this one of the biggest hits uh, that he ever had in the early '60s, and that was all he saw from the recording company. When the thing went, when the thing shot up through the charts and they sold, you know, went platinum and and whatever over the years, and he never got anything else from the recording industry. Um, you know, the story with a lot of these artists is they get ripped off. They go through the tour. These guys come back after touring and supporting these albums that are that are going, you know, go, they're selling hundreds of hundreds of thousands of these albums and the recording and you know company, you know, they're making, you know, millions of dollars off of these guys and these guys are out touring to support the album, promoting the album. They come back from tour and the uh and the labels will hand them a bill um for all the stuff that they did on tour and they're and and the recording artist is barely breaking even. These are the artists, you know, that are barely breaking even. The, the Stones had the story. They're they're famous. They they lost like the their first uh, five or six years worth of work. I think it was seventy two or seventy three. They they cut a deal with one of their managers 
uh, giving up all the rights to all the stuff they'd done up till then. And that's where you see like Abco Records, A-B-K-O, I forget what the guy's name is, uh, Klein, I forget, whatever the guy's name was. But they had to sell all their, their rights to all their songs, all their early hits from their first albums, all their albums with like Brian Jones up to like 72 and stuff like that. Uh, this legendary stuff, you know, Angie Babe, they had to, they lost all the rights to Abco, they probably bought a lot of it back since then, but uh, turned that stuff over as part of their deal so that they could own their own label, their own recording stuff to all the rest of their stuff. They weren't obligated under their early contract anymore. And these guys mm -hmm. would come back from tour. They'd have a big bill for all their hotels, all these expenses and, you know, stuff that, that they were getting charged. Uh, Tom Petty had to declare bankruptcy at one point to get out from under his recording track with his first label because every time he'd come back from tour, he'd end up more in debt than the year before. Uh, and he was, you know, he'd come back and he'd have these, these, you know, he's selling these albums that are at the top of the charts and he can't afford to to keep doing music because every time he because his tour the the record company's charging him so much money from his tours, and so all these guys you know all these guys are testifying before Congress about the recording industry and they all have these stories about you know the recording industry they're this you know if you're a fan of music these guys are not your friends these guys you know undercut every artist and undermine every artist and rip them off for as much money as they can get, um, and so you yeah. know. At the end of the day, nobody was. I don't think too many people were sorry to see these, you know, these major labels sort of losing their shirts, losing their record stores, and and all this stuff. And ironically, uh, a digital single is nothing physical, right? So you're saving on material. It might cost you three or four hundred thousand dollars to record it in the studio initially, depending on how long it takes and how much you're paying all the artists and engineers and and for the recording space and all this stuff. But after you make the first record, the first song to make the to 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 make copies, digital copies on a computer of the second, third, fourth thousandth song doesn't cost anything. Yeah, it's a click of the mouse. Well, I'll tell you what I do, Chris. Right. There's a site, listen2youtube.com. You pull any <laughs> audio off of YouTube. <laughs> so that's how I get all my music. Right, right. Well, <laughs> so there's a dozen site. different ways to yeah, and it's, to it's get to get your music for free. Legal, the, it's the, cool the, and yeah, the recording industry and the you know some of. Some of it's not really helpful to the artist. It's sort of, you know, we've got like a dozen different philosophies that we saw in this video. And so yeah. some artists are like, you know what, you know, we, you know, if you're doing it right, you should be selling out shows. If you're a good performer, a good artist, and you're in it and you enjoy, you should enjoy, if you, you know, real musicians should enjoy performing and stuff like that. He should be making his, you know, money at the shows. Um, if you can make any money selling, you know, selling other pro other you know stuff online, good yeah, for him. Merchandise. Yeah, but intellectual property really should oh. be distributed. It's more creative and more productive for society and the culture. Other guys are like, that's not right to give away my songs. You know, I've labored over these songs and crafted the song and stuff like that. And for all these guys, you know, just to just for it to go on the internet and uh, and all these guys just get it for free. That's not right. Um, you know, I don't know exactly where I stand on all that stuff. Uh, there's a there's a dozen different techniques to the recording industry. Ultimately, if you like an artist, they'll get money out of you somehow. <laughs> <laughs> if an artist has enough fans, yeah. And uh, seeing a concert is probably a more direct way. Right. That's where you support an artist. Yeah. Um, you know. The most profitable shows are the biggest venues where you have. Because I mean, you know, people the... used to record songs off the radio onto tape. Yeah. You know? Oh right, exactly. Do it that way, so right? There's right. always loopholes. There's always some way, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Sure. Um, uh, yeah, the yeah the two fan or or the you know what do they call them bootlegs? 
you know, the fan that's with the recorder goes into the, you know, at the concert and he's recording, you know, you get all the noise of the fans around you, but if you stand close to the speakers. Yeah, that was part of the, the controversy. Yeah, what did it, the whole, the whole thing came to the head when the Metallica guys heard, uh, heard their song on the radio and they hadn't even finished, you know, recording it in the studio yet. They were still polishing it on the studio and they're saying, yeah, there's 25 radio stations playing your newest hit song. And he's going, what newest hit song? We're still working on it. We haven't released it yet. We, we, where do they get this stuff? You know, well, something leaked out at the studios. You know, some engineer or some technician or, or you know, somebody's girlfriend got a copy of something that, you know, got something at the studios and it got a hold of somebody and it got put on Napster and all of a sudden, you know, it's playing, being played at the radio stations. And so that's when, uh, well, uh, that's when Metallica, you know, went and served a lawsuit and got involved in this thing and said, hey, wait a minute, this is not right. Uh, you know, we have any, this isn't a version that we were prepared for anybody to hear yet. Yeah, uh, a, a parallel example is uh, on sites like Pirate Bay, the most popular TV show Torrented is Game of Thrones, which is an HBO show. Yeah. And for the longest time, you, you needed an HBO subscription or a password to to right. watch HBO. But now they've just created their... A separate streaming service that you can do monthly, <laughs> right. where you don't need an HBO subscription. So even right. they have changed their model to stuff like Netflix and Hulu. I think I think we're at a point in our culture where it's finally becoming apparent to the corporations that a little thing called ethics <laughs> is becoming significant. Uh, we've seen so much um, activity and this sort of lack of respect for other people's rights, other people's issues in our leadership for so long. Hmm. Um, you know, we have like, uh, I always, you know, my favorite example of course has always been Watergate. Um, but on all these corporations, you have stuff like Enron, you have stuff like the, you know, the wall street, you know, Lehman brothers and these market issues where these big corporations and their, uh, bookkeeping and their poor ethics and their, uh, stuff. And, 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 you know, little kids and youth, teenagers and stuff like that, they see this. And these are the leaders. These are the business guys. These are the deciders in society. And if, if these guys don't care um, that they're taking money out of the hands of, of people, um, you know, the common man, the blue-collar workers, guys that had money, you know, invested for in hedge funds or whatever they are, that that's the retirement pensions of these companies, um, you know, we're, we're putting uh, people, blue-collar workers, becoming homeless um, because the Wall Street guys are playing all these games and taking all this money out of the stock market um, and can't explain their behavior. Um, and we have this, and, and so the kids growing up, it's like, well, you know, why should I respect anybody else's property? Why should I respect anybody else's value? You know, if I can, if I can torrent, torrent this intellectual property, why, would I, why wouldn't I? You know, all the leaders that the guys that are complaining that about pirating, all the guys that are posting these messages about the beginning of my every one of my movie about pirating, these guys are taking every chance they can get to take money out of other people's pockets. You know, they take advantage in every business deal that they can. Every kind of you know, they don't what's their sense of ethics that's that's universal in our culture. Um and and so that's what you know, that's the the, the culture of the US the ethics culture in the U.S. is very different today than what it was 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Um, you know, our expectations of, of what other people might do, uh, you know, given the chance when somebody's not watching them is very different today than what it was 
40 and 50 years well, ago. Well, I think what we're seeing in a way is if you can't beat them, join them. Right. So, for example, Google bought YouTube. And a lot of people listen to music on YouTube, and now they play ads. And, I mean, I use ad blocker. But yeah. for the most part, they're able to make money off the stuff that people were getting for free on YouTube without shutting down YouTube. And instead, they bought YouTube. Right. <laughs> which is really what the Napster people wanted. Like, yeah. buy us. They just you know? expected to be bought. They didn't have yeah. a person to contact at the record industry. They would have been happy cutting a deal or some kind of settlement. Yeah. Over and over, you heard Sean Parker, and Sh I think that. it was Parker, was a Parker or Fanning, which, whichever of them was sort of the, the business, the more the administrator. Yeah, Fanning. And Fanning. And he's like, he was convinced there was a, there was, he, he was just astonished that they couldn't find some business model that would work whereby the recording industry, the artists would get, you know, uh, would, they'd be able to negotiate uh, money for the artists, so the artists were getting paid a reasonable salary. There was uh, money for marketing and for the, you know, the major, the labels that had, you know, were, were putting up this overhead and putting up this uh, overhead for the artists and, and for the studio time and stuff like that. And, and, uh, and he, you know, and Napster wasn't, you know, they weren't, they weren't really in it for the money initially, you know. They they just they wanted to get paid for their time computing and stuff like that. But they went forward and did all this programming, you know, thousands of hours of programming before they got paid. Not you know not knowing for sure that they'd get paid. Um, out of just they they just they love music and they wanted people to be able to share music, you know. As they saw that there was going to be worth money and they kept going and stuff. But they were certain that somehow that this they were going to demonstrate for the recording industry. There's a better way to distribute music, you know, Absolutely. and and it's become really it was it's become the model for Facebook. Um, yeah, uh, you know, MySpace was popular at the time, but it's become the model for Facebook and and uh, and Google and these other companies that we embrace now. The big, you know, Twitter, um, where it's just people sharing with their friends and their family and their relatives and expanding their little universe of people that they know, their work coworkers and their communities um, by common interests. Yeah, and I like that you know that there's a happy ending here. Even though these guys sort of went bankrupt, uh, not too long after they became millionaires again. Well, the the, <laughs> the sad part was for their their venture the capitalists, their investors. I guess they had about uh, I'm not exactly sure what they said, but it sounded like they had a lot of at a certain point. Pay, yeah. Well, at a certain point, Nap uh, no, it wasn't Nap was the settlement. Uh, at a certain point, the Napster guys. There was a bunch of venture capitalists that saw that. Napster was going to become extremely profitable, and mm. they invested—I don't know millions, uh, how many millions of dollars they put into it. Uh, you know, there was however many, you know, whatever employees that Napster had. You know, maybe it was less than a hundred people. I don't know, how hundred or so, whatever, yeah. and all their computers and servers, whatever. But whatever money, but these investors put in some money. Uh, when the lawsuits came down. And there was ruling in favor of the record labels and the and the artists, you know, the bands that sued them. Um, then uh, the guys Fanning and Parker and the actual engineers and technicians and programmers at Napster, they didn't have any money. <laughs> they were college kids. They didn't have any money. Yeah. They, they'd had, you know, they had the few million that the investors would ever put forward to them and their equipment and stuff, but they didn't have the hundreds of millions of dollars that they were losing that was going to be awarded in the settlement to these record labels because that's what the record labels could estimate they had lost in record sales. Uh, Napster so, itself wasn't making a lot yeah, of money. Yeah, so in the documentary, it sounded like the guys that lost all the money to the record labels, lost the money, that had to fork over the money in the lawsuit, were the venture capitalists, 
were the guys that they'd put forward a, a few million dollars or 10 million or whatever it was to Napster early on. But now um, they were the guys that had the hundreds of millions of dollars in their pocket that were down as the owners of the company, you know, the investors in the company. So they were the ones that had to fork over everything to the, you know, they had the they had the sad, the unfortunate consequence of having the money, <laughs> having <laughs> previously owned so much money above and beyond what they had invested in Napster that was available for the record companies, you know, yeah, when the settlements came, both, when the, when both the Sean's court decisions landed came on their feet, you know. So. Right, these guys are still recognized as heroes. Uh, yeah. it, uh, in the computer culture, and they still have a you know all very gifted yeah. programmers, very talented. I mean, you know, Sean Parker at least owns like three percent of Facebook. Right. Fanning as did a, some video game thing after and became a millionaire off that. You know, right. so incredibly bright, you know, sort of guys. But but they were college students. They weren't these. I didn't get the impression from them that they had started the company to become multi-billionaires. Uh, they had started. They got involved because they loved music. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's true. At a certain point, they were happy. They were excited to meet the guys in Metallica and the Ketanese artists. They were, they were happy to contribute, you know, to... They were happy to give people, you know, music. That people were sharing music. That was, you know, that was as much a reward as anything to them. Uh, the fact that they got, you know, that they, you know, got enough money where, you know, they don't have to worry about getting hired. <laughs> they're not... They're, <clears throat> you know... Speaking of music, Chris, yeah, this is a song that exists. All right, I, I promised Jared that we would talk about a movie called The Raid Redemption. And... Fortunately, because we spent so long talking about other stuff, I don't actually have a lot to say about this movie. Right. Because it's a great Indonesian martial arts action film. Right. The English version is subtitles. It's, it's, it, well, it's, it's dubbed. It's in English. It's in English. Yeah. It's yeah. dubbed in English. It's dubbed yeah. in English. Um, Which is cool. Yeah. And, um, and it's an action movie, so... Amazing uh, action. Uh, very yeah. well directed. You know... I'm not an action aficionado. I'm not a martial arts expert, but it was just the, the <laughs> a lot fight of scenes. Food, a lot of martial arts. Lot, the fight scenes cool just stuff. seemed to go and go and go and go. These guys were just, uh, just amazing uh, fight scenes. As far as I was concerned, hand to hand combat, guns, weapons, tactical, yeah, strategic. I think it's a very good example of story structure that you see. It's this like 15 story building that they're going up. So you start off with, you have a lot of men, you have a lot of weapons, you have a lot of guns, high body counts. Then as you go on, you lose your men, you lose your weapons, and it's a lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat sort of a thing. Right, it was just very inter very interesting on like a tactical level as well as an emotional level. Uh, you know, there was a couple of relationships, there was family a, yeah, a family one guy issue. Yeah, has, has a, a wife and who's pregnant. And he has a brother who's who's, who's part in the of building. Who's in the building? Yeah, and it gets more complicated than that. Um, then there's an amount of corruption in the police force. Um, I was gonna say it reminded me of New Jack City. I hadn't seen it. That was a New Jack City is a 1991 American crime thriller action film. Um, you haven't seen this? I saw bits oh, you, of it. Oh, it was okay. directed by Mario Van Peebles. Um, 
And it's about a rising drug dealer and crime lord in New York City Seems during like the, the crack epidemic. Um, Ice-T plays a, a detective who vows to stop this crime activity by going undercover to work for the gang. And I want to say it was it had a similar plot. Yeah, they're both um, about drug lords. Crime lords, yeah. Right. Uh, but the twist, sort of, is that this this head of police sort of guy, makes a deal. Right. Well, uh, the movies were similar because this, this thing was in this, like, 15-story apartment yeah. building that... That's, you kind of go floor by floor. Right, that that the that the uh, drug dealers are using as sort of a... Uh, it's, they're using yeah, they're it as sort of their castle. It's their... Um, uh, yeah, they sort of made it their armory. So it's very difficult for the police to pen- penetrate. Yeah, Once they the, go inside, they're very vulnerable. They the can only bring in so many police floor. at a time. They're visible to the police. And that's that reminded me of this New Jack City. Um, and uh, I want to say... So this uh, is uh, cocaine, yeah. Yeah, it's a You don't really see the drugs in the raid. With, with the, well, no, they the went in the... There was on. a big fight scene in the lab. Um, but in uh, the in New Jack City, they have a similar deal. The there's a there's an apartment building that the drug lords convert into a crack house. Uh, it, it says they convert a they convert an apartment complex into a crack house, and so the the cops have to sort of go into this thing, and it's a similar issue where they sort of have to fight their way through this this big apartment building that's a uh, that's a a drug lair. Uh, of uh, criminal activity and there's all these shootout scenes and all this violence and stuff like that. Um, so it yeah, seemed I mean, like you know, this seemed a... like an Indonesian version of New Jack City, sort of as much as I remembered it. Okay, I, I can see that. I mean, there's lots of stuff with police and SWAT and drugs and right this sort of stuff. For for Asian films specifically, these martial arts uh, face-offs are very important. These sort of pairing off. Of these guys, equally skilled, that are good matches for each other. Mm. So, that's cool. Um, you know, I wish I had more to say. I didn't really understand a lot of it. Yeah, um, there was. Uh, yeah, there was a certain amount of romance. More than it's, anything, it's it was an action movie. Yeah, more than anything, it was an action movie. Yeah, uh, martial arts movie. You see, you know, when we see this this drug lord just you know shooting people in the head like six guys in a row, <laughs> row yeah, so, okay, uh, this execution. guy's evil, Exe- you know. yeah, executing him. We can tell there's some there's some great scenes with machetes. Guys are fighting with machetes. We guys don't really are doing know who's hand. living in this Empty building. Hand. Some of them, yeah, there's work a for him. Yeah, some it seems hostages. like there's a lot of blue collar people, innocent families that are just trying to live their some lives inside this building, and they're you know. right, they're going through. It seems pretty run down. You know, pretty shabby, right. Where it plays probably somewhere was remote. At the, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. At the end of the movie, there's sort of a face down between these brothers, and they're dealing with this really corrupt cop um, at the top of the lineup, and they're you know they're they're trying to bring out this drug lord and bring, you know bring him down, but some they 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 send in like twenty cops in the beginning, and so all but two of the cops. You yeah, know, and they said a few killed. times we're not fighting for good, we're fighting for money. Well, that's what that sort of realization becomes towards the end, and yeah. how the and the cops get into the thing. It's like now, how are we going to get out? You know, we've killed them. You know, we've we've lost almost our whole team. There's not enough of us to fight our way out. 
you know, what if we grab the, the drug lord, the guy that's running this place, and use him as a hostage to get out? And sort of that's where they're yeah, at. So they, they think down. maybe another drug cartel paid off the cops to, know, to send the this, general yeah. to to take this guy down. Yeah. So I mean, you know, he deserves to be taken out anyway. Right. Uh, so right. So more than anything, an action movie, um, mixed martial arts action movie. Um, kind of a dark, really dark ending. Dark, yeah, dark ending. A few people kind of make it out alive. Yeah. A lot of bloodshed, very violent, <laughs> extremely violent. Just the worst kind of decapitations and death scenes. It just yeah. Um, I mean, it was made for one point one million, which is very low. So that that's impressive. That seemed like very low for as as much activity. And yeah, as much, for trying the, to fight as the yeah, production as value, season, right? So that's cool. I mean, it's. I mean, we'd consider that an independent movie. In a cheap independent movie. Well, I don't know, maybe 1.1 million goes a lot farther in Indonesia than it does in Hollywood. <laughs> That's true, yeah. There's less union, you know, <laughs> feast. But... The cost of living probably a lot lower in Indonesia. And for those of you that don't know, Jakarta, uh, one of the three largest, I believe it's one of the three largest cities, depending on how you measure, one of the three largest cities in the world. One of the biggest. It's up there, much, much bigger than New York. Yeah, so... The raid was shot with a Panasonic AF-100, whatever that means. So that's cool. So 80 for 85% Rotten Tomatoes, pretty good. You know, those were highly positive reviews. So that's good. This is a. Uh, this is part one. This one came out in 2011. There was a sequel later. So, sorry, Jared. I wish I could say more about it. It looked great. <laughs> <laughs> it was extremely. Uh, I'm sorry. It's sort of just a visual experience. It was extremely, extremely violent, uh, extremely dramatic, uh, romantic in a very few places. Um, but yeah, not really my style of movie. Not that nothing wrong with it. Just not heavy on narrative. Yeah. <laughs> not a lot of twists and turns. Cool. So there you go. The Raid. You know, Jackie Chan was a great guy. Yeah. I really like his films. He was very talented. I mean, one thing you just got to give him points for is that they have to all be doing their own stunts. The athleticism. You know, you're assuming that they're, amazing. Yeah. they're hiring these guys because they can do martial right. arts and do all this awesome stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's that, yeah. So, these guys work out big time. Okay, so, well, that really we can't we can't end like that. We, I feel bad. That's, that's just not a genre that I have a lot to say about. <laughs> I wish I could give you for something. once. Yeah, for once. <laughs> for once. Well, it wasn't about the Vietnam era or World War Two or the change in American culture. So you know. All right, we'll end on this. How about this? Right. Um, winning the Racing Life of Paul Newman was a cool film, directed by Adam Carolla. And what Adam wanted us to take away from this film, because Paul Newman had this whole other life, this racing life. That started relatively late. Yeah, that happened in his forties. He's already he'd already been like yeah, he he'd already had like a full career as a screen actor. And he did it right up until the end. I mean, into his seventies he was doing this thing. And Adam's whole takeaway is that's who you want to be. You want to be like this guy. Right. This guy did what he loved. 
He didn't care what people thought. He used his own money. He funded it. He took this great movie career. He did the salad dressing. He donated to charity. He did all this stuff. Yeah. And this... Uh, Full Renaissance guy, really. He was a... This is a great role model of a guy. Yeah, Paul, Paul Newman... Paul Newman's he absolutely career reached, loved it. Paul Newman's career reached way back into the... Uh, I want to say the late 40s, the 50s, anyways. When you're behind the wheel... Your movie star reputation doesn't help you. There's oh, nothing the advantageous. Yeah, yeah. About, about racing. Yeah, well, it's like this great equalizer. Right. Well, it's for said, who you are. It said the way that he got into it was it he did a, down. He he did a he did the show. He did a movie that was where he was a, played a race car driver. Yeah, called and Winning. He, right, and he got trained trained as a driver and doing this stuff, and he enjoyed that so much that he started get took it on as a hobby. Um, he wasn't especially good at it, and he was very, very old to get started in it. You know, most of these guys um, that were involved as professionals get started as teenagers or, you know, even as kids, when, you know, working for their fathers or something like that. He's coming in. He'd already been, he was uh, hugely famous, you know, as a as a movie star, and he's coming into this thing. He was already, he'd been an A-lister for, you know, maybe almost a decade or something like that when he got started racing, and he got into this. So, he, you know, he was able to get into it because he just spent, so much of his own money to do this stuff, and he started, you know, started racing and stuff, and he just took it on because he loved it, and he surprised everybody because he improved so much so quickly that he was able to, you know, be very competitive, uh, you know, with these pros that were coming along, um, and he was one of the few guys his age, you know, it was surprising that at his age he was still had the athleticism and the talent uh, to be in the wheel and racing in some of these events. You know what, Chris? I will say this about the raid. It looked great on your 50-inch TV. <laughs> That's KCAST for this week. This is Caleb. This is Chris. Peace out.